I know you guys are very excited because you look at that board over there and all those dates, it just fires you up. You're like, this is going to be the greatest sermon ever. I can't wait to think about things that happened in 586 B.C. to 458 B.C. 2,500 years ago. What does that have to do with me? And I think it has a lot to do with us. And we talked about, so what we're getting to, what we're working towards, what our plan is, is we're going to be teaching you through the book of Nehemiah. And so to teach through the book of Nehemiah, we need to consider Ezra and Nehemiah. And the Hebrew scriptures, the Jewish Bible, the Jewish scriptures, they were one book. Ezra and Nehemiah was one book, one historical writing. And it's about history. It's about the history of God's people. And more so about the history of what God did and what God was doing through His people. And so last week we read Ezra. That was pretty unique. As a body, as a collective body, we took the entire service and just read through the book of Ezra and listened to that together and considered that together. And it's a different type of uh, literature. It's a historical writing. And so it's not something that you get the first time. If you guys remember history class, I would read my chapters and I'd have no idea what I read sometimes. You get to class, they start talking about events. like, I don't even remember reading that. Okay, and so we read that last week, but a lot of this is all these strange names that Lexa did an amazing job with. So, but as we read through that, you guys might have finished that, and you might have been like, I really didn't understand what I was reading, and that's okay. All right, because as I've even studied through this and reading through this in Ezra and Nehemiah repeated times and studying, and these names started to become familiar, and the events started to become familiar, and then it was like all of a sudden as I'm studying and reading, it starts to light up, and you see how this is connected to that, and this is connected to this, and it all starts to make sense, and you can see this story, and you can see where this part of the story fits in with God's overarching story of history and what He's doing through His people and what He's working towards this restoration where He's going to make all things new. And so we're going to look and we're going to focus in on just this little small piece of this hundred years right here, okay? And we're going to walk through Ezra today. We're just going to take one week to study the book of Ezra. This is going to be a little bit different, okay? I'm not going to have these points and illustrations and application. We're going to walk through this. It's going to be a little bit more like class today so that we can kind of have that background and have that understanding and have that context, particularly as we move forward next week and read Nehemiah and then start to work through Nehemiah verse by verse. Everybody's with me? All right. So we talked about the primary theme last week of Ezra would be God's faithfulness, right? That God continues to be faithfulness. And as we walk through this and see, there'll be two pieces that we, I want to repeat and repeat and repeat sub-themes of that. That God is sovereign, that He works through His people, He works through pagans, He works through all people, and then that God is continuing in His plan. He has a plan and His purpose, and He is continuing forward in that. He's continued forward in that then, and He's continuing forward in that now. That we are actually connected to what happened then. It impacts us now. And God, just as He was using them, God wants to use us in this place, in this neighborhood, in this time. So it's then and now, His sovereignty, and then His purpose and plan that it continues on. Okay? So, understanding that, I want to start with just a historical context. And the best way to do that with Ezra... And you guys laugh at me because I'm going to take one step back and we're going to read the last paragraph in Second Chronicles, okay? Which is the book before Ezra. But where Second Chronicle ends, Ezra begins, okay? And actually before that, I'm going to take steps back all the way to Genesis. Real brief. I have to walk with you guys step by step through this or you'll get overwhelmed, okay? Alright, Genesis. 
creation. God raises up a people. He comes to Abraham, right? And he says, I'm going to make you the father of this nation. I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless the world through you. I'm going to expand you. I'm going to increase you. And then through you, I'm going to bless the world. And then he took his people into Egypt. God sovereignly brought them into Egypt, and they were built up as a people in Egypt. And as they were in that slavery in Egypt, then what did God do? He redeemed them. He brought them out of Egypt. Right? Moses came, he led them across the Red Sea, and they were in the desert and wandered for 40 years. And in that desert, he gave them his law. He says, this is how I want you to live. This is how I want you to live according to my ways so that you're going to glorify me. I want you to be this light as you live your life that people are going to see me and they're going to be drawn to me and my goodness and my glory. And then after a generation, he brought them into this promised land. And he established them there as a people and as a nation. And as they were existing as a nation, they started to fall away from God at times. They started not to keep His commandments. And God said, if you don't keep my commandments, I'm not going to watch over you. I'm not going to care for you. There's going to be consequence to that. And there was this exile where they were taken from this land and they were exiled out to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar came in as king and he sacked Jerusalem. He took over Jerusalem. He burnt down the temple, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. And then he took God's people, he took the Israelites in exile back to Babylon. And that's where we pick this up. So I want to read that little piece in the end of Second Chronicles that summarized that. So on the screen, and go ahead and turn your Bibles. If you'll flip, find Ezra, and then right before it, Second Chronicles chapter 36, and then we're going to stay in Ezra the entire time, okay? All right, so Second Chronicles 36, verse 15 through 21. This is going to summarize a little bit of the end of what I just talked about. It says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by His messengers, because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising His words, this is talking about the Israelites, and scoffing at His prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against His people, until there was no remedy. Verse 17, Therefore He brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, this is Nebuchadnezzar, who killed their young men with a sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or age. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of princes, and all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. Verse 20, He took into exile, into Babylon, those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord through the mouth of Jeremiah and until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So God had established his people. He was living amongst them. And he called them to live according to his ways. And over time, as they didn't live according to his ways, and they didn't honor him and glorify him, he had to respond. And he responded as he said he would, and he took them out. He took them out of the city. The city was burned. The temple was burned. The walls were broken down. And he took his people out of Jerusalem and exiled them to Babylon. And it says, until though. Until this Persian king will take over. So Nebuchadnezzar was a Babylonian king, and then many years later, this Persian king that we're going to read about in Ezra here, Cyrus, takes over. 
And you guys have to help me. Make me fill this out. So 586. This is the exile to Babylon. In 538, this is where we pick up in the first verse of Ezra. Cyrus is king and he makes a decree. So after 48 years, is that right, the math? Cyrus comes in and he makes this decree. And this is where we pick up in verse 1. And you see the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom. God sovereignly took this pagan king. This was not an Israelite. He was a Persian king. And he put this in his heart and he stirred his heart. And he sovereignly moved him to make this decree to say, it's now okay for these Israelites to go back to Jerusalem. They were in exile. They'd been brought out. A generation had gone by. And he says, now it's time. If you want, you can come back to Jerusalem and you can rebuild that city. God had his way with the imperial kings. But then he also had his way with his, the people. Look at verse 5. One five. It says, Then rose up the heads of the fathers of houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. God sovereignly worked in the heart of the king, this Persian king, and he sovereignly worked in the heart of his people. He moved them both in the same direction to accomplish his purpose and his plan. And what I think that the author here is showing is that this is a continuation of God's plan. God is not starting over. God is continuing on with His people. He took them out in exile. There was consequence for their sin. There was consequence for them not glorifying Him. But He says, now I'm going to continue with you. I'm going to bring you back. You're still my people and I still have a plan for you. And you can see this as we read through and you kind of look at that last paragraph in, in uh, Second Chronicles and then you look at the first chapter in Ezra. You can see that they had all these vessels taken from the house of the Lord. When Nebuchadnezzar came in and he took over the temple, he took all the things that were in the temple that honored God, he took them back to Babylon. We saw that in verse 18 of that 36th chapter of Second Chronicles. But then when we get to Ezra 1, verse 7 through 10, you see that these vessels, they were brought back to Jerusalem. So they were returned from Babylon back to Jerusalem. So God is restoring. God is taking what He used before. It went to Babylon. Now He's bringing it back. The resources, the vessels of the temple, the things that brought Him honor that were there. And then secondly, you see, in Second Chronicles, the temple was destroyed. It was burnt down. And now what is God doing in Ezra 1? He says, I'm not, I'm not done. It's not over. I'm going to continue. I'm going to send you back. And what's He sending them back to do? To rebuild this temple. So the, the things of the temple, the treasures of the temple, the vessels, they were taken to Babylon and brought back. The, the, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed and was burned down. God says, I'm going to rebuild it. And not only just the things in the temple, and not only the temple in Jerusalem itself, but then He says, my very people. He says, I took you out of Jerusalem. I sent you into Babylon. Now I'm going to bring you back. I'm not starting over with a new people. I'm keeping my people to still my plan, still my purpose, and I'm going to continue it. I'm going to bring it to fruition. And so I just want us to understand that, that God is not starting over. This is part of God's plan, and He's sovereignly moving that to continue His plan, continue His purpose. All right, chapter 2. So this is 537 B.C., 
So Cyrus comes, he makes this decree. God sovereignly uses him to say that it's okay for the Israelites to return back to Jerusalem after they've been in exile. And then in 537, they start to return. So this is the first uh, return. The first wave of exiles to come back to Jerusalem. And so they make their way back to Jerusalem. And then he lists these people. Chapter 2 is all about names, all about families, all about these people. And what the author is showing, what God is saying here is that, again, these are the same families. I brought these families out. The, 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 the next generation of these families, I'm bringing them back. I'm not starting over with new people. These are my people, and I'm going to continue to use my people. If you look at the first verse in chapter 2, it says, They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. Now these would have been mostly second generation or third generation Israelites. All of these people. It says from each to his own town. And then it goes to the son of this, the son of that, the son of this, the son of that, the son of this, the son of that. It lists all these families, these, these family groups, these family units, how they were related, how they were connected to those that had been sent out. They were connected to, they were still God's people. He said, I'm still going to use you. You have turned from me, you didn't honor me, but I'm still going to use you. I'm going to bring you back. God is not done with His people. He's not starting over. He's continuing His purpose. He was going to restore Jerusalem. He was going to restore the temple. He was going to restore His people. He was going to restore His name in that place. And I think God's heart is the same today. I think God wants to use us. He wants to use His people. If you know Him through Jesus Christ, then you are grafted in. You are a part of His people. And He wants to use us in this place to rebuild, to restore, for His name to be glorified here. For His name to be glorified amongst us. For His name to be glorified in this place. We're from this family. This is our family. We're His family. We're His people. We're supposed to represent Him. In the Old Testament, they were to be a light and draw the people in. We're to be a light that goes out to people. We're sent out to be salt and light. But it's not just us in this place. It's at this actual place. It, it refers back to Judah, back to Jerusalem, back to their towns, back to the place where God's glory, where His name would be known. That's what God still wants to do. What was important here in 537, it's important to God in 2013 right here in Lanark Park. He wants His name to be glorified here in our lives and through our lives in this place. Do you guys believe that? Do you guys believe that? Do you guys believe that? It's real. It's real. As I, as I look at them, I'm like, oh, this is what God wants to do. This is, what God is, this is how God has operated with His people. This is how God continues to want to operate with us. God wants His name to be glorified. He wants His name to be magnified. And He wants to do that here. He continues in his purpose and his people were going to participate. He says, I'm going to send you back. God could have raised up the temple. God could have built it himself. He says, no, I'm going to send my people back and I'm going to work through my people to restore this place, to restore this temple, to restore my presence through my people. And so they come back, chapter 3, and they start to rebuild. First, they start to rebuild the altars. You look at verse 2, chapter 3. It says, Then arose Jeshua, who was the high priest, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, 
Lexa did a better job than me, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So it was written in the law of Moses, what was given to Moses back in this desert before they came into the promised land. They're going to come back to this law, and they're going to carry out this law, and the first thing they're going to do is build the altar. The altar was for sacrifice. The altar was for atonement. The altar was to make this relationship with God right. That they could be in relationship with Him. If there wasn't atonement for their sins, they couldn't have relationship with Him. So the first thing they needed was the altar so they could have this vertical relationship with God that could be restored through those sacrifices. And then you look at verse 6 in chapter 3. It says, But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. They laid the altar, but the temple was not was not started. And they said, we need to start the temple. So in Ezra 3, 8, I'll read that. Now in the second year after they're coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests, the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. It wasn't just the priests. It wasn't just the Levites. It wasn't just the godly people or the, the, the priestly people. It was, and then it says, all the people that had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. Everyone participated. God used all of His people to rebuild this altar, to rebuild this temple. And then the foundation is complete. So they finish the altar. They finish the foundation for the temple. And let's see, the foundation for the temple, that's complete right here in 536. From 536, a year after coming back, the altar is restored, the foundation of the temple is complete. They have a celebration. They come back, they celebrate the Feast of Booths. Verse 11, it says, they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. And listen to how they remember God right here. It says, For He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. They said, For God is good, and His steadfast love, His ongoing love, His enduring love, it endures forever. God has loved us then, He's loved us now, He continues to love us, and He's bringing us here, and He's using us. And look, He's establishing His temple he is a good and steadfast, enduring love God. That's how they recognize Him. His purposes endures, and He continues to use us. He continues to use His people. He is faithful. And so the temple was there, and we don't understand this as a church today. Why would they come in this place? The walls are broken down. The city was in ruins. The first thing they do is the altar, and then they start to build the foundation of the temple. The temple was the central, it was central to this worship of the Lord. It was central to the worship of Yahweh. To be in relationship with God and for God to protect them and to walk with Him, they had to build this temple. This is where God would dwell. This was where His presence would be. And it also signified God's, it signified His presence, that it signified that He was working amongst them. If there was no temple and God was not present, how could He be working amongst them? So if there's no temple, then God was not working. No temple, no plan, because God wouldn't be present. They start to rebuild. The foundation is laid. They're excited. They celebrate. And then what happens? Chapter 4, who remembers? 
What happens when you start something that's going great? Everybody's excited. You're all fired up. We're starting to see God work. And then what happens? There's opposition, right? It happened 2,500 years ago. It happens to us now. There's opposition. So chapter 4, it really starts to see this opposition. And it looks like in verse 1 through 5 of chapter 4, these are probably Samaritans, right, that were, that were half-breeds in a sense that they had been, um, the Assyrians had brought in and had settled amongst them. And they first tried to come in and infiltrate them. They're like, let, let us be a part of this, okay? But we see that their intentions were not good to want to be a part of this because then they start to discourage. Then they start to in, uh, intimidate them. And then in 4.6, we see that they wrote this letter, but it really doesn't talk about the letter in verse 6, and this letter doesn't look like it had much effect at all. They tried to write a letter back to the king, try to get this stopped. And then there comes a second letter, or a second wave of opposition, around six years later. So this in 530 is when we get this second opposition. They start to rebuild in 436, I mean 536, and then in 530, the second wave of opposition, and they actually stop building. In Ezra 4, 12-13, this is part of the letter that they wrote to the king at that time, which is Artaxerxes. It says, Be known to the king that the Jews who came up from, the, from, from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. So they're telling this person, king, do you know what these Jews are doing? You don't know about these Jews. Let me tell you about what's, what their purpose is and how they're going to do this. And they're trying to rebuild this wicked city. It says they are finishing the walls and they're repairing the foundations. Verse 13, now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. When they spoke to the king, did they talk about this great and amazing God and what he required of his people or how they were going to be religious? No, they said, you're not going to get your tribute, you're not going to get your toll, you're not going to get your tax. They brought financial things before the king and made a financial argument as to how he was going to not receive what he deserved from this, uh, this uh, province where the Israelites had gone back. That spoke to the king's ears. He makes a response. He makes a decree and he stops the work of the temple. Verse 23, Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshah, the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of King Darius of Persia. So in 530, they had started building the temple. The foundation was complete. In 530, the construction stops. And you can see the next date here is 520. For 10 years, nothing's done. For 10 years, there's no building in the temple. For 10 years, it's like one of those sites where you see people come in with money and they clear the ground and they start to build something. They put a few things up at the foundation. They run out of money. And you see this vacant lot where what could have been but never was. For 10 years, it laid there. For 10 years, it looked like God wouldn't show up. And then chapter 5. God is sovereign again. God moves in the heart of His people again. And then we'll see that he also moves in the heart of a king again. It says that through the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, 
they begin to rebuild the temple. That's a whole other story. You can read that in Zechariah and Haggai, in those books, those prophets. But they basically come and say, you're not living according... You need to rebuild this temple. They, they prophesy and they encourage the people to start rebuilding. And so the people start rebuilding ten years later. And when they start rebuilding, this Persian governor, Tatanai, he says, wait, 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 what's going on? What's going on here? I think ten years ago you guys stopped building this. Why are you start building this? And he went to them and he starts to ask. And they say, we had this decree from Cyrus back in 538. He said we could build this temple. And he said, wait, wait, wait. That's about 18 years ago. And I would assume that they couldn't have Googled that and looked up that decree of Cyrus. They had to go back to where the records were kept and go back and see if what these Israelites were saying was valid. We're going to go back and we're going to see if, if, if this is truly real, if Cyrus did make this decree, if they can be here, if they can be rebuilding this temple. This goes to King Darius. That brings us to chapter 6. Alright, Darius responds. And then we'll see that the temple is finished. So Tatanai sends this letter to Darius saying, can they really be doing this? Was this decreed back in 538 by Cyrus? Darius receives the letter. They pull out the archives. They see that it was decreed. And you see in Ezra 6, verse 6 through 12. We're going to read that together. And then this part I want, this is a long passage of Scripture, but I want you guys to see how God is, again, sovereignly working. He worked through His people. He used the prophets. He spoke to His prophets. He stirred their heart. He says, start back the building to His people. They start back the building. And then the government gets involved and He works through sovereignly through Darius's heart that we're going to see right here. So verse 6, Now therefore Tatnai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bazanai and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Get away from the Israelites. Let them build. Let the work of this house of God alone. Let the governors of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house on its site. He says, I got your letter. I looked at the archives. Leave them alone. Let them work. Let them be about their God's work. Verse 8. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for rebuilding of this house of God. He said, not just leave them alone, not just let them work, but let me tell you what you're going to have to do to support them. He says, the cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, sheep, for burnt offerings, to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. We're not just going to stay out of their way. But we, as a pagan nation, we're going to meet their needs. We're going to supply their resources. It's going to be in full, right away, whatever is needed. God sovereignly worked through Darius' heart to provide them with that, to allow them to return, to allow them to continue this work, and then to meet all of their needs. Verse 11, Also I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it. And his house shall be made a dunghill. I was going to contextualize that language, but I, you guys would be upset if I said that in church. Verse 12, May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. So this 
pagan king, this Persian king, says if anyone confronts this work of the people of Israel, there will be retribution, there will be consequence against, the, against that individual. They'll lose their life, they'll lose their inheritance, they'll lose their land. And even a king who tries to oppose them, he'll be overthrown. This is what a pagan king makes as a decree. This is what Darius says. Look at the last, last verse. It says, And Darius made a decree, let it be done with all diligence. God used a pagan king to provide resources, to tell other people to stay away. And sometimes I think as we go about God's work, we limit God in what we expect or what we think He can do. God is sovereign. He is huge. He is big. He is glorious. He will use us. He will use every person to bring about His purpose and His will. And we should walk with that and expect that and trust Him with that. We should actually believe that God is sovereign, that God is going to accomplish His purposes. We think, oh, if, I'm, if we do this wrong, if we do this right, if we have this strategy or that strategy, I was in this conversation and I screwed it up with this person. If we look back at God, the same God that is using His people, the same God that is using us, we can screw up, we can mess up, but God is there and He says, come on, I want to continue on with you. I am sovereign, I'm going to bring about my purpose, and I will be glorified. We need to look at God like that. Because what happens? In 5.16, the temple is completed. In Ezra chapter 6, verse 14, it says, And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. So the rebuilding began. And then in 5.16, we see that the temple is completed. And you guys are excited because we're getting to the bottom of the dates. The temple is done. God works sovereignly through kings, through His people. He works sovereignly through everyone to bring about His purpose. He brought His people back. He brought the things of the house of the temple back. He starts to restore His city. He starts to restore the place where He dwells. And they rebuild the altar and they rebuild the temple. And then you see the next date, 458. How many years is that? 58 years later, I think. That's from chapter 6 to chapter 7. 58 years go by. And I want to give you guys an idea of 58 years, because it's 58 years since the temple was finished. We're right here. This is chapter 7. When we first actually see Ezra, who the book is named after, he's only got three chapters where he actually is there. 58 years since the temple was rebuilt. Here comes Ezra. And you're like, well, that's not that long. We're talking about hundreds of years, 2,500 years ago. Really, how long is 58 years? For us, that would be 1955. A few things have changed since 1955. Do you guys remember what was going on in 1955? Were any of us here in 1955? You don't have to raise your hand. That's a long time ago. That's a long period of time. A lot of things changed. Think about the technology. Think about the world. Think about communication. Think about everything that was going on in 1955 compared to 2013. This is the same amount of time that's gone by since the temple was complete and when Ezra shows up. But God sends Ezra. Again, sovereignly. Ezra was in Babylon. He was in exile. 
He would have been born in Babylon. He would have never uh, known of or seen Jerusalem. But as we see this in Ezra chapter 7, we understand that he was a man of the law. Look at verse 6 of chapter 7. It says, This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Again, God is sovereignly moving. He identifies this man, Ezra. He's prepared this man, Ezra. Even though he's in Babylon, even though he's not in Jerusalem, he is skilled and he is knowledgeable in the law, the law of Moses. Remember this law that is way back in history that he's continuing on with. God is continuing with his plan. Verse 10, verse 11. It says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Then look at the end of verse 11. It says, Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Ezra knew the law. He was skilled in the law. He was a scribe of the law. And he comes back and he's sent by, again, God's sovereignty, this king, Artaxerxes. And he says, I want you to go, Ezra. Look at verse 25 of chapter 7. He says, And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, again, this is a pagan king, telling Ezra what's going to happen, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them, you shall teach them. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. This pagan king tells Ezra, this man skilled in the law, skilled in the law of Moses that God had given, I want you to go back and I want you to go to this land, this province in my kingdom, and I want you to establish your law there. And I want, if people don't know it, I want you to teach it to them so that they can live and act according to your God. But I don't know your God, I don't follow your God, but this is what I want you to do. Again, just that we would see God's sovereignty through this. Chapter 8. Again, this is a genealogy of the exiles. This is another wave of exiles coming with Ezra. And he lists their names and he shows how they're connected. Again, God is continuing his plan through his people. He's not done with them. He lists through those names. Chapter 9. They arrive. And Ezra makes an assessment of the people. He comes to Jerusalem for the first time. He's a Babylonian exile. And he comes and he lays eyes on Jerusalem and he looks at the people and he sees how they're living. Chapter 9, verse 1. It says, After these things have been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians and the Amorites. Verse 2, For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, that's what Ezra calls it, is faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men have been foremost. So in this faithlessness, the leaders are, are the, at the top. They're doing this as well. Verse 3, As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. So 58 years have gone by. And what does he repeat? He repeats it twice, that the faithlessness of the people. 
They didn't have faith. God brought them back. He brought back the things to the temple. He restores the temple. They have 58 years where they're on. They're they're uh, providing, making sacrifices on the altar. They're in the temple. God is restoring and rebuilt it, and they become faithless. Over 58 years, they forget God and they quit acting according to His law. It says they had they had not separated themselves. They had married foreign women. And Ezra, understanding this, he mourns in verse 6 through 9. And I need to just briefly talk about these foreign women. Because like, you might read this and you're like, well, God doesn't think there should be uh, interracial marriages. What's up with that? But the issue, as you heard from Ezra, they were not being faithful. They were faithless. Repeatedly he says they were faithless. And this was a demonstration of their faithlessness. They were not keeping the law. They were not keeping the commandments that Ezra was skilled in. And he knew this. And that was what defined their faithlessness. And so let me just give a brief overview because this is going to help us as we get to Nehemiah. Because I want us to understand this as we go into Nehemiah. And I think it's important that we understand it now. And you guys may think this is a little long. But I just went through 10 chapters in over 100 years. So I want us to understand about God and about how He works and about how He is continuing to use His people that He makes promises. And there are some promises that God has made that He is going to keep and that He will carry out regardless of us. This is the Abrahamic covenant that he made to Abraham. He says, I'm going to come and I'm going to make you a people. I'm going to make you a nation. I'm going to grow you and I'm going to bless the earth. I'm going to bless the nations through you. God is doing that. He is sovereign in that. That is going to happen. That is going to come forth. Then when he gets to the king, when King David, he makes this covenant, this unconditional promise to him. And he says, one of your descendants is going to reign forever over this earth, reign in righteousness forever and ever and ever. This is, again, another promise that's going to happen regardless of us. God is sovereign. He is doing that. That is his purpose. It will happen. God has blessed Abraham. He has increased him. He is blessing the nations through him now. And he will bring this king that will reign forever in righteousness over all the earth. Okay? That's what we're waiting on. That will happen. But then as a part of that, there's also these vertical promises or these conditional promises that we see. The first was the Mosaic Covenant. Okay? And we've heard this over and over again. This is what Ezra was skilled in, this law of Moses. Okay? And the two primary components of the law of Moses was sacrifice And then the commands, or the law. They built the altar to make sacrifices. And in those 58 years, they were supposed to be keeping His commands, keeping His law, living according to His way. They continue to do these two things. And you might say, well, the Mosaic Covenant doesn't apply to us anymore. We're part of the New Covenant. Alright? This is Genesis 12, if you guys want to read. And then I think Genesis 17, 15. The Davidic is 2 Samuel 7. The Mosaic Covenant, Exodus 19 through 24. So 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic Covenant, God will establish His King. Then the Mosaic Covenant we see throughout Exodus 19 and 24. Again, make sacrifice so you can be in relationship to me and then keep my commandments, live as my people. 
And then we are part of this new covenant that Jeremiah spoke of, that Zechariah spoke of, and he says, I'm going to make this new covenant with my people. He's like, I'm going to give them a new heart. I'm going to take out this heart of stone, and I'm going to give them a heart of flesh. And he then says, I'm going to write the law on their hearts. No longer will they need this law of Moses, will they be under that, but I'm going to put my law, how they should live, how they should live according to my commands on their heart. And then we hear that from Jesus, and we say, well, it doesn't matter how we live. If you know, Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice, well, no, but he says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. He says, go therefore and make disciples, teaching them to obey all the things that I've commanded you. So Jesus, as we see, he continues, and we see the sacrifice, and then we see the commands. We're under a different covenant. But you see, the components are much the same. Their sacrifice required, but Jesus came and He made the once and for all sacrifice. We no longer have to go to the altar and make continual sacrifice. He made that sacrifice. He came and He made this way for us to be in relationship with God. But then He says, now keep my commandments. And so you see that the aspects, the components are very similar. This is the same God. He's continuing His plan just as He had it here with Ezra and the Israelites as they came back. He is now doing that through us. And so we have to have that in the back of our mind as we go through Ezra and as we, or as we finish Ezra today and then as we go through Nehemiah. God has unconditional promises. He is going to accomplish this regardless. These, as I said, are conditional. If, we do, if they did these things, then they would be able to participate and be a part of what God was doing. If we, by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and obeying His commands, then we're able to participate and be a part of what He's doing. So our participation, our being a part of their participation, their being a part of, are dependent on the same things. Just we are under Jesus Christ, they were under the law of Moses. But it's the same God continuing in His plan, continuing to use His people to bring about these unconditional promises. Does that make sense? And when Ezra comes back, they're not keeping this Mosaic commands. They might have been keeping the sacrifice, going to the temple, but they weren't living accordingly. They were religious. They were going to the temple. They were completing what had to be done for us on Sunday mornings. But during the week, they weren't living according to His commands. They weren't living out and loving Him and loving their neighbor. And this idea of these foreign women... That was not just marrying across ethnic lines. That was marrying across faith lines. He says, how are you going to go and marry these other women, these other families that are in this place where you've been returned to back in Jerusalem? If you marry across these lines, they are of different faiths. They don't serve me. They don't love me. And so how are you going to be in this most intimate relationship? How are you going to establish your family with someone who doesn't serve me and have a heart for me and love me? I need you to be pure. I need you to be holy so that you can glorify me. Because for them, if it was about anything other for their worship to be holy, it had to be about these two things. If you added something to that or you subtracted something from that, this did not work. They weren't able to participate. For us, if we add anything to or take anything from Jesus Christ, it doesn't work. It's Jesus Christ and nothing. We can't add to, we can't take away from. It's Jesus Christ. That's how we participate. That's how God brings us in. And so they were adding these other things. They were, they were marrying these families, these women of different faiths. And to understand this, it's a lack of faith. It's faithlessness. 
God sent them back. He's like, I've given you my law. This is how I've told you to live, and you're not living according to it. Why not? Because they didn't trust God. They went back to this place. They didn't have the land. They weren't established. If they married into these other families, they would have had protection from the people around them, the other nations that had settled there. They would have had land. They would have been able to take care of themselves and provide for themselves in an easier manner. So they started just to become sort of part of the world, part of the region, part of the ways of the things that were going on around them. And slowly and surely, over 58 years, they sunk back into this. And we'll see this come back up again in Nehemiah, and we'll talk more about it. But Ezra moves from this personal mourning. He sees them, that they have sinned against God, and he breaks down, and he repents, and he mourns. And in chapter 10, we see where he moves that from himself to the people. He says they all came to the assembly. They all began to weep bitterly. In verse 2 of chapter 10. In verse 3 of chapter 10, he says, Therefore, let's make a covenant. Let's decide right now to move forward in a way that will honor God. Let's decide to live again according to his promises. We've been in disobedience. We've been in rebellion. But we need to repent and act accordingly. So they make this promise to God. And then, not just Ezra, not just the guys that were immediately around him, but he makes this decree and he says, you've got three days. I want everybody to come to the town square. I want everybody to gather here. And if you don't gather here, then you're going to be cut off. God brought us all here. He used us all to rebuild his temple. And now I'm calling you all back. And we've all got to listen to this. And we've all got to understand how we've offended God. How we're not living according to his ways. And that we would all make this covenant with him. That we would all repent and start to act and live in a way that would honor him. And that's where Ezra ends. They respond to that. They start to act according to God's law. They start to live in a way that would honor Him. So all that, mostly history, context for us to understand. But God is sovereign. He brings about His purposes. He continues to use His people. And we are a part of that. We serve and we love a sovereign God. He can use us. He can use our lives. He can use anyone around us to bring about His purposes. And He wants to continue that. He wants to continue through us. And that the requirement still, just as it was for them, is through the sacrifice and the commands, it's still for us through Jesus Christ, through His sacrifice, and through living a life that honors Him by loving God and loving our neighbors. That's what God wants from us so that we can participate with Him. That He can be his name can be made known in this place. That His name can be made known amongst us. Everybody still with me? Alright. I'm sorry, that's not normal. But it's needed. It's required. It's important. For us to even to go through and walk through Ezra, we need to kind of have that understanding. I mean, to go through Nehemiah, we need to have that understanding in that context. And so I would encourage you guys to read through read Ezra's 10 chapters. Read through it again. With this understanding, we're kind of hearing that. And as you start to read through it, with this understanding, connect the dots, it will start to make sense to you. And it will start, if you can have that foundation, as we start into Nehemiah, Nehemiah will make more sense to us. And not just that we'll have more understanding, but then that understanding can lead to application and we can be changed and God can be glorified through us. That's the point. That's the purpose. That's what God wants to do.